Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 36, and it was recorded on Thursday, February 20th, 2020. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. This is our third episode of season four. We were joined by Kim Churches, Chief Executive Officer at the American Association of University Women, Christian Mehta, Assistant Vice President Engagement at Ryerson University, and Melody Song, an associate at Vitreo Group. Our topic, inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. Idea. This is a huge topic. Diversity and inclusion are huge topics all by themselves, let alone the topics of equity and access. The Association of Fundraising Professionals, AFP, along with many others, has significantly elevated the discussion and action on this topic. But even with this, and many other great initiatives, it can sometimes feel like two steps forward, one step back. Join us as we celebrate what we have achieved and we talk meaningfully about where we need to go. It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome to episode 36 of Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is our third episode of 2020. Our topic, inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. Idea. We have terrific leaders with us today, three terrific leaders. All three have and continue to play important roles in diversity and inclusion. I'm excited to be here. They're excited to be here. Let's get started. First, joining us from Washington, D.C., we have Kim Churches. Kim is the Chief Executive Officer of the American Association of University Women. Kim has been a guest on a number of podcasts. This is her first visit to ours. Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, Kim. Thanks so much. Kim and I have known each other for more than 10 years. We first met as volunteers for the Association of Fundraising Professionals, AFP, at a meeting in Washington. We have kept in touch over the years, and I have followed the journey of Kim and her adopted daughter, Ruby. In fact, before Ruby arrived in her life, Kim wrote a blog called Waiting for Ruby. Kim, before we get into today's topic, and if you're up for it, we would love to know a little bit more about how you adopted Ruby and what's going on in her life now. Can you share a bit of your story with us? I'd be happy to. Uh, Ruby is now an almost 12-year-old vivacious tween here in Washington, D.C., who believes she knows more about U.S. and European history than anybody on planet Earth. Uh, She was adopted at nine months old old in Guangxi, China, and uh, it was a long process because it was during the time of SARS. Uh, There was a lot of uncertainty, Russians' adoptions, shut down internationally, and there was a lot of controversy about uh, a lot of conversation out there on adoption and what that meant, both domestically and internationally. Uh, And for my then husband and I, it was really about a way to broaden our family. We had options uh, to look into um, other ways of bringing a family into being, um, but really ultimately decided on international adoption. And Ruby now plays uh, baseball, tennis. She's a mad magician um, and has taught me more about the globe uh, than most adults. Today, 
she's, in fact, j- in just a few short days, Vincent, um, I will be getting married uh, a- again to a gentleman named Adil, who's Zoroastrian. Uh, his family's Pakistani and Indian. Uh, and so we're truly a global family. My ex-husband and I are, are like the television show Modern Family. We're very good friends. We uh, co-raise our daughter uh, and have extended family and friends. Uh, he's supportive of my new marriage. Ruby's exceedingly uh, supportive and has already promised uh, to do magic tricks at the wedding party, which is kind of a hoot. Uh, she's she's pretty pretty extraordinary young lady. And if you met the two of us today, even though I have blonde short hair and she has long, beautiful black shiny hair, people who meet us immediately know that we're mother and daughter because of our mannerisms. <laughs> That's great. Thanks for that, Kim. I'm so great to get that update on Ruby, and congratulations on your upcoming marriage. Thank you. Um, next, also from the Eastern Time Zone, but a little further north, joining us from Toronto, we have Dr. Christian Mehta. Christian is the Assistant Vice President Engagement at Ryerson University. This past January, Christian joined the Vitreo blog as a guest blogger when he wrote a great piece as part of our series on diversity and inclusion. Thank you for that, Christian. We have tried to have you on our podcast before, but we were not successful. We're so glad to have you join us today. Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, Christian. Happy to be here. Thanks, Vincent. Christian and I have gotten to know each other also through our work with AFP. Christian most recently was a chapter president of AFP in Toronto, um, and I think that's still the largest chapter in the world. Um, Christian, in addition to your alumni relations work and your volunteer life, you're also the director of the Fundraising Management Certificate Program at Ryerson University and Professor at Elton University's Philanthropy and Nonprofit Leadership Graduate Program. Jeepers, man, do you sleep? I'm uh, I'm kidding, of course. Um, we're gonna hear much more about your thoughts and experiences around diversity and inclusion in just a few minutes, but before we go there, can you share with us a bit about this passion you have for, for formal learning in the nonprofit sector? Absolutely. Well, listen, I have uh, come to the issue of diversity and inclusion really from the lens of learning and, uh, frankly, a bit of unlearning. Uh, you know, as a, as someone who grew up in Canada, um, uh, born and raised in Ontario, uh, but come, you know, have roots from other places, uh, I, I have a, a very nuanced view of how diversity and inclusion plays itself out from my own lived experience. Uh, what I've been able to do is really think about that in the context of the work that I do every day in fundraising and in engagement of our communities. And it really started off um, by working with a number of different donor groups uh, from various parts of the world, now living in Canada, about understanding their philanthropic interests and motivations and how does that um, challenge uh, and open up at the same time opportunities for charities. And, um, you know, given that I've spent my entire fundraising career in a university or college setting, I've been able to think about that as it relates to learning. And uh, most recently as the newish program director for the Chang School's Fundraising Management Certificate, been thinking a lot about how do we create um, opportunities for up-and-coming, emerging, and uh, new fundraisers to think about how to incorporate and think um, about fundraising and diversity in everyday practice. So bringing together practice 
and theory and um, a critical eye on the entire scene is really uh, my bag. I'm really excited about those that potential. Well, thanks for that, Christian. I'm, I know we talked a little bit about maybe we could do a podcast on um, formal learning as a nonprofit sector. So I'm looking forward to that. So thanks for joining us. Finally, Thank you. joining us from right here. Sorry about that. Girl, we're talking. Finally, joining us from right here in Calgary, at least for now, is Melody Song. Melody is the founder of Do Good Here, a network of professionals delivering design labs to foster collaboration and connectivity in the social sector. Melody is also an associate with us at Vitreo, and like Christian, she has guest authored a blog post in our diversity and inclusion series. This is Melody's third visit to Brain Trust Philanthropy. She first joined us way back in season one when we were talking about why nonprofits should be hiring data scientists. She also joined us in season two to share with us our, her expertise on Chinese philanthropy. Melody, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. Melody and I have gotten to know each other over the last few years. She's an amazing person, and she shares my love for some of the more nerdy aspects of the social sector. Today's podcast is a bittersweet one for us, though. Melody and her family are in the final stages of moving themselves to Germany. Exciting for them, sad for us. Melody, we're going to miss you so much. We're going to ask you to dive into uh, inclusion and diversity in just a few minutes. Before that, I wanted to share with our listening audience a bit about why the move to Germany? Where are you going to be living and what are you going to be doing? So um, this is my second move across continents. Um, I was born and raised in Beijing. And when I was 21, I moved to Canada um, to further my higher education. And, and Canada become a home to me for the past 25 years. <laughs> uh, and uh, But now, like, it's kind of... A, interesting sensation for me to move away because I feel like I've become a Canadian. I'm identifying with the Canadian identity, but now I'm moving away, possibly permanently, because we don't have families here. So our families, my husband's German and my family is in China. So we might not even come back or have a reason to come back. So that is uh, a little bit sad for me. And, um, and I also have learned a lot uh, from this move, actually. Um, first thing, I try to, you know, get my house all packed up, and I feel like I want to do it in a very sustainable way. And that, like, that actually involves lots of work and lots of research. Uh, you know, like, I want to donate and recycle and reuse most of our stuff. So um, it turns out to be very successful with the help of my community. Um, I was able to reduce our waste coverage to like only 2% of the stuff will end up in the, in the waste and everything else are being bought or reused by our neighbors. And so that was really good. And, uh, and we're looking forward to our new adventure in Germany and also, you know, like how my son, who is a German, Chinese, Canadian, <laughs> going to like grow up in Calgary, how is he gonna adapt into the into German society? And, you know, he's unwilling right now, but um we're gonna see what um you know what's gonna happen with him. Um so it adds a lot to um like our stress, but it adds a lot to our adventure as well. Um so our family is very international right now. 
um, and we look forward to eventually move over. So my husband uh, got a job in the tech sector in Berlin, and that's the reason why we're moving now. And for myself, I understand that there are many international NGOs in Berlin, and I look forward to uh, having, a, having an opportunity to work with them. So, yeah, well, so next week on well, Wednesday, we're flying. Well, that's exciting, and um, uh, and uh, selfishly, now now I have a place to stay in Berlin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thanks, thanks yeah, Melody. Definitely. And I and I, and I hope that uh, that reticence with your son turns into excitement pretty soon. So thanks. Thank okay, you. let's get started. Thank you all for joining us on this our thirty sixth podcast. Today's topic: inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. Idea. This is a huge topic. Diversity and inclusion are by themselves huge topics. The good news is we are talking about diversity and inclusion. The even better news is that we are starting to do more than just talk. Our professional association, AFP, along with many others, has significantly elevated the discussion and action on this topic. Last fall in Phoenix, AFP hosted IDEA, the Women's Impact Summit. By all accounts, this is a watershed event and the demand for more life is palpable. Sometimes it does feel like for every advance we make, we also have more than a few setbacks. It can sometimes feel like two steps forward, one step back. Kim, you were a keynote speaker in Phoenix. You were also the CEO of a women's advocacy organization. Where are we in this fight? Yeah, great question, Vincent. Depending on the day, I sometimes wake up more like Eeyore than I do Winnie the Pooh, uh, and, and, uh, or Tigger for sure. Uh, the reason being is as many strides as we've made in terms of access, uh, being able to see it and be it, making sure that women, people of color, uh, intersectional views on, on humans on the planet in terms of socioeconomic, religion, race, ethnicity, disabilities, uh, educational attainment, etc. we all strive for communities that allow everyone to thrive and thrive in the ways that they can follow their dreams. Yet, so much has stagnate, uh, stagnated, even with all of the progress we've made, uh, you know, just in terms of women's rights. And I'm talking about educational attainment, economic security in the form of pay equity, leadership roles, retirement security, um, is really stagnated. In fact, uh, the pay gap just in the United States alone has barely moved a nickel in the past two decades, meaning it could be another almost 90 years before we actually see parity in pay for equal work. Uh, and that's a big issue for me. I think some of that is, some, some of why we're not moving faster is uh, we see more women and more people of color in the labor force in a lot of different roles, but it's still shockingly small. So for example, of the 3,000 largest businesses on the planet, women only hold 6% of those leadership roles. And therefore, you know, we can't even think about leadership pipelines or how we're thinking about ambition and how we have bias and discrimination against humans who are different than us in, in what we think a leader should be. 
Uh, and I think some of that, Vincent, is really about the fact we haven't examined our paradigms and systems. We haven't thought about what it is like to move through education, then into the workplace and into our communities, and how those systems were really set up in kind of a Norman Rockwellian time frame uh, that just isn't pertinent today. Um, it just doesn't matter. And we're not also, even as we're working in, in my own organization, we work so hard to make sure we're improving policies, knowing that policies and laws, you know, really can help to improve um, human lives and hold people accountable. But laws in and of themselves aren't going to change human behavior. We have to be doing work at an individual and collective team teamwork. We have to hold employers responsible, and I don't just mean for-profit, I mean in the educational and nonprofit sector as well. Um, and we have to insist that we're looking at how we're thinking about elected and appointed officials. Um, I'll lastly say I had the opportunity last year to be the guest of a congresswoman out of Florida to attend the State of the Union in the United States. And we wore uh, uh, suffrage white, <laughs> suffragette white that day to, you know, look ahead to what now this year is the 100th anniversary of a women's right to vote. And I'll clarify that that was a a white woman's right to vote in the United States, not inclusive of all. And sitting in the gallery, looking down at uh, the United States Congress of seeing the House of Representatives uh, of, of very much representing the demography that I know is the United States, brown, black uh, people, young and old, male, female, non-binary, transgender. You're seeing all of that playing out in so many different ways. And then you look to the right side of the gallery and the Senate is is largely made up of old white men. Uh, and this idea of how demography on this planet is changing, yet we know that for humans, change is difficult. We all say we believe in transformation, but how much do we do we really embrace change? And I think that has a lot to do with what we're talking about today in terms of inclusion, uh, diversity, equity, and access. Okay. Holy cow. Um, great way to kick this off. Um, and there's so much to unpack there, which we will actually start to unpack. But I will also ask, and thank you for that, Kim. I want to ask maybe uh, Krishan if you wanted to weigh in on where we are in this fight. Um, and feel free to tag on to anything or start new trend uh, topic lines that you feel like are important. Krishan? Yeah, I have to say, uh, Kim, there's so much in there that I um, wholeheartedly agree with and I'm witnessing it within the context of my own setting here in Toronto. Uh, it's interesting to uh, think about, uh, uh, you know, segments within the broader kind of uh, idea of what we constitute as diversity inclusion. You know, I spend a lot of time writing and thinking about uh, immigrants and children of immigrants as part of my research. Uh, just by way of background, uh, a few years ago, I completed my PhD at the University of Toronto, which um, looks at how high net worth immigrants uh, participate in the charitable sector. In other words, how do they um, uh, give their philanthropic time and dollars to charities locally, but also in places they come from? And, you know, there are lots of contextual pieces that led to the study. Uh, one was really kind of an understanding that uh, the hands of power are in some ways changing, but at the same time, uh, the complexion may be changing, but sometimes the attitudes, the values, and the principles may not be. And that's a very interesting um, uh, piece to be thinking about as we talk about diversity and inclusion. 
um, just a few years ago, I was at a conference where uh, uh, former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan uh, noted that um, of all the Fortune 500 companies, about 50% of them are uh, founded or were founded by immigrants or children of immigrants. A uh, recent study um, uh, found that 82,000 millionaires move from one country to another in any given year. And given uh, that many countries, um, uh, particularly in the global north, um, have opened up borders um, in various cultural contexts, uh, it's very important that, uh, or economic contexts that they do so, but also in terms of humanitarian, um, for humanitarian reasons. The, the, the complexity and nature of um, the flows of people across borders has led to new conversations about what does this have, what does this mean? What is the potential for charities, uh, both in the local context, but also in the places where people come from? And what's really interesting for me, thinking about it from the, uh, the lens of diversity and inclusion, is that you know sometimes we are able to really um, intellectualize the, the the topic and think about you know okay well how does this really you know impact um, charities uh, kind of at a cerebral level, but also you know what does it mean in terms of challenging the way we do things. Um, every day, but also in terms of just processes around governance, around uh, leadership, around uh, thinking in new models of giving or different ways of giving and valuing them in the same way as we would traditional models of giving within our own context here in North America, perhaps even in some parts of Europe. I'm really interested in that piece because it, what it asks us to do as charity leaders and as fundraisers or those working in the nonprofit sector is really open up the sandbox, so to speak, and consider other ways in which we uh, can appreciate um, the, the generosity of people who uh, may find their homes or their um, their communities elsewhere. And so, you know, that, that provides a really interesting um, kind of landscape to be able to take diversity and inclusion and and really turn its um, notion on its head, uh, the notion of diversity and inclusion on its head. I have to tell you that, um, you know, I was, as I mentioned earlier, I was born and raised here in uh, Ontario and Canada, and um, oftentimes I'm, um, uh, you know, mischaracterized as a foreigner, someone who was born elsewhere. And, uh, you know, I, it makes me think a lot about how does that play itself out in terms of uh, the work that I do and the relationships I hold, not just with my donors, but with my colleagues, with volunteers, with my own community. Um, you know, the further intersectionality of being gay for me is also, uh, you know, adds further uh, complexity to that matter, too, which is which is something that I think about often. And so, you know, I bring I bring to the table uh, and to this conversation, you know, a, a critique really of diversity and inclusion, mostly because um, I've seen uh, an experience, as as Kim mentions, as, as a form of stagnation, um, but also, you know, a sense of excitement and optimism because I believe that you know the journey uh, is uh, is uh, open, uh, and and that it requires really. Um, both grit, but also determination and um, uh, strategy to, you know, see itself move forward. Uh, so, you know, I, I like you, Kim, you know, have good days and bad days <laughs> on this one. Um, but I think that's uh, par for the course in, in some respects. 
Thanks for that, Christian. I uh, I love the fact that we 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 opened with women and the workforce, uh, and then we added the pillar of uh, immigrants and charity. Um, Melody, what do you want to add to this conversation? You get the 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 option or the the cross to bear of being the third to weigh in. Yes, um, I definitely resonate with both of you, Kim and Christian. Uh, and I, as a fundraiser, like uh, and also talking to my colleagues in in AFP or opera, um, we often ask the question, like like I was just in the iWave uh, podcast as well on diversity inclusion, and we were talking about the question, and people were saying we want to know uh, the business case to diversify our donors, mm-hmm. and to me that is a interesting question because um, if you look at the stats, our donors are already very diverse. Um, like the blacks are giving more uh, and uh, as far as wealth, uh, percentage of wealth, um, all black, Hispanic, and Asians are giving more than white donors. So why are we asking questions how we are going to diversify our donors? Because in my opinion, our donors already diversified, but they're just not visible to the fundraising community or, you know, nonprofit uh, organizations at this point. Um, maybe because they are not the traditional sense of what a donor look like. So that was um, something that I feel that we need to really change ourselves uh, in looking at this issue. And another thing is uh, I, I led a solve song with AIP Calgary where we talk about uh, what are the priorities for diversity inclusion in in our fundraising profession just this last year in Banff. And we had a, a questionnaire that was put out to our, um, you know, our members, including Toronto. Toronto was very collaborating as well. So um, what we got uh, back is very interesting because some people are actually thinking diversity is a false pro- problem or they're not grasping what diversity really is because they're saying, oh, we're hiring people due to the cultural fit. You know, if, if you are relying on cultural fit, then it, it means that, you know, you sometimes just, you just hire the same people. So, and, and people are like, this is, this is actually not a problem in the sector. So to me, I feel like the diversity inclusion problem is, it's very high, like it's talked about a lot, but a lot of people don't know what it really means. Um, and, and that is, because we're all hiding behind a lot of institutionalized values, like professionalism. You know, we have to hire people that fit into our team, or, you know, nothing is personal and, you know, everything is procedural. Uh, so that kind of thing. So, um, for me, it, it's really just like what Kim and, uh, Christian was saying. It's a systemic issue. Like, how are we going to look at the system and how we're going to change that is where the fight really is. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I'm what I think at this point. 
Boy, uh, Vincent, if, can, go, I, can go, I just go, add go on something again. to what Melody yeah, said here? Is you know, I, I love that idea of these sort of environmental and institutional ways of thinking of groupings and like-mindedness. And you know, I argue with my team all the time about uh, my favorite folks that are working with me as colleagues are ones who tell me when I'm crazy or when I have an idea that doesn't make sense, not just yes mamming me to death. And I'd say. You know, on that, it's so much easier in kind of the old smoke-filled rooms of how decisions were made and and power structures of hiring people like us. And uh, Christian, I'd even say, you know, having worked in academia myself, you know, if we only ever hire Ryerson grads, which I know you would love, um, but (laughs) if we, you know, you're only basically taught by the same 10 or 15 professors then. And I used to argue when I was in academe, you know, pushing out to employers in New York or Seattle or Toronto. Toronto uh, or Belgium, that they were wise to not only hire from the same four or five universities where their decision makers went to school. You know, if you only recruit from your uh, from from your alum uh, and from your university or college, you're going to get a single way of thinking, and you're missing out on dynamism. You're missing out on potential innovations and. That, for me, gets to inclusion, diversity, and intersectionality so much because the data and the research is there that when we have more people around a table that come from different backgrounds, better decisions are made and ROI goes up. It's basic math. Exactly. Now, yeah, I agree. Thank In you fact, for, I would say ahead. that, you know, I would call, I would call that move ex- exclusion. <laughs> Oh, for exclu- <laughs> inclusion. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, diversity and, and also, exclusion. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, and I Ellie. also think that the, um, you know, the, like in Canada, overwhelmingly, I feel as a kind of a, like, pioneer generation immigrant, um, like when I get hired into a team, you know, like, and, and you have people kind of very alike, and you feel that need to fit in. Like a lot of um, people who are different are kind of like, especially our generation, not not like the generation the Gen X, pretty much. We kind of feel like we need to fit in. We need to um, cater to that professionalism. Um, especially earlier in my career, I was like, I want to be like you. Um, so. So that is not helping. You know, like I got corrected by Asian people. Um, you know, you shouldn't be speaking Chinese around, around in a group or in a party. It's like even though I'm not addressing to people who don't speak Chinese, you know, so like I got corrected by Asian people. We correct ourselves. So that is uh, something is a barrier for me as well. For people like me, we we need to actually start being a little bit more brave and feel a little bit more comfortable about standing out as ourselves and uh, yeah, just to contribute. But that is really hard to do, I feel. So yeah, so that's, um, and I and I also feel like if, um, if donors who are already diverse are being ignored, they are starting to lose trust in nonprofits and charitable organizations. And that's what we're seeing here are, um, losing, you know, we're losing donors. The whole, the new um, uh, issue of nonprofit quarterly uh, dedicated the whole issue on why we're losing donors. And part of the reason I think it is because donors are losing trust in nonprofits. 
they are looking for ways to completely skip the charitable organizations and to just directly contribute to the cause that they're believing in because we have ways to do that now. So it's, it's just, you know, how do we as a sector to look at how we're treating donors and how we're, how we're looking at the traditional definition of philanthropy as well and not having that condescending attitude towards either donors or other ways of giving and saying that is uh, narcissistic or, you know, it's, uh, it's not the cultural norm. Thank you for that, Melody. We have, we've started to, ex- ex- well, there's a ton to unpack here, but I was wondering, I want uh, some feedback from the group. Uh, there, I heard about the not a problem mindset, and I also heard about the um, I want to adapt to the cultural norms mindset. Uh, do we want to explore either of those, or is there some other direction that we want to go in right now? I'd love to tag off of those a little bit if we could, Vincent. I mean, you know, yeah, in, in, in this nation, you know, a lot of my work at AUW is focused first on access to education, to access to jobs and access to leadership roles. And, you know, on the educational front, I think you're seeing girls and women, uh, succeeding in a lot of parts of our planet, certainly not all. Uh, with uh, attainment of education, both at the elementary uh, sort of high school equivalent and beyond. Here in the U.S., women earn more associate's degrees, bachelor's degrees, graduate degrees, and PhDs uh, than men and have for quite some time, yet they carry more student loan debt um, and they face a pay gap of about 20% a year out of college. So not equal in any way. But as we think about that, of what that means for fitting in um, and, and looking like like others, you know, uh, right now there are municipal, uh, county, state, or provincial laws um, going underway now to remove things like um, hair shaming uh, and making sure that your hair uh, is a statement of who you are and uh, you cannot be discriminated on how you wear your hair, which is a major, major, major issue for women of color of trying to fit in for decades and decades and decades in white-filled halls in uh, business and in employers. And I think starting to see that you can be your authentic self uh, in education settings, uh, and, uh, you know, so not just on campuses, but in the workplace helps to change the way that we determine and view what professionalism looks like. You know, uh, we changed here to, I remember when I started working, it was all suntan pantyhose, God help me, uh, you know, closed-toed shoes and skirts that had to be two inches below your knee and you had to wear a, a blazer at all times. And today in my office, you know, you dress for your day. I purposely as the CEO, wear jeans, you know, and, and a sweater and a scarf on days when I don't have external meetings to set that tone that it's okay to be in business casual, that we can absorb and understand that it's now 2020 and not 1972. And how that plays out as we think about inclusion of making people be something they're not, uh, you know, it, it's, it's exactly as Christian said, it's about exclusion rather than inclusion. I'm sorry. I I love what you said, and I but I had a flashback when you said 1972. It's not 1972, and the uh, the the opening sequence of Mary Tyler Moore. Exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly it. The whole different era. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, Vincent, because um, I've been thinking a lot about 
how um, uh, we come to learn about kind of local customs and traditions and um, to what extent do we have the privilege or power to um, resist them and to in some ways challenge them. Uh, it's a tough one because when you're already not in a position of power or uh, you are uh, you know, surrounded by those who are more powerful than you, to be able to um, be to own up to that bravery and to um, uh, uh, kind of smash through it uh, requires a certain level, a certain kind of community as well. And I think a lot of the change that we are um, talking about really rests within kind of a collective action uh, and a, su a support mechanism that is in the making that, you know, still needs to uh, uh, be realized. And, you know, one of the challenges, in my opinion, to the issue around diversity and inclusion for that matter is that within the general kind of understanding of diversity and inclusion, there are lots of fragments and fissures and understandings of what even it means. And I think um, that in some ways has led to a, a certain level of stagnation. Um, and, you know, overlay on, on that generational issues or, and approaches to it. Um, you know, uh, at AFP, we've spent a lot of time recently, I would say, just kind of scratching the surface on, um, you know, some of the challenges of, of fundraisers from various uh, backgrounds, women, people of color, LGBTQ uh, fundraisers face um, in everyday uh, settings and uh, work settings, I should say. And, you know, the, the ways in which the kind of uh, diversity of our workforce, the nonprofit charitable workforce, has really... Um, kind of stayed the same over a number of years. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's, it really does come down, in my opinion, to power. And, uh, and you know, Kim, you're in a, an excellent position to be able to role model change and to um, influence change um, amongst, amongst, uh, amongst your staff, but also colleagues as well. And I think all of us, uh, it's kind of incumbent upon all of us to have um, that voice uh, to advocate for those who, you know, could, you know, benefit from, from that support. Which brings me to kind of a really interesting kind of thought around, um, the role of mentors in diversity and inclusion and, and, you know, how we, you know, really need to develop a, a community of support for one another as we, as we kind of, uh, work through the, the, the trenches. Uh, and that's that's an important element to that, but also the sense of sponsorship too, which is something that I've been thinking a lot about. in, in terms of just instead of uh, someone talking, as if I was a mentor talking to a mentee, I would be talking about a mentee out into the world, talking, bigging them up, talking them up, because I think it is important for us to be able to uh, kind of pull back the curtain and say, hey, listen, there's an amazing skilled workforce out here that doesn't look like uh, the dominant culture. And we really need, it's incumbent upon all of us, not for the business case, but because it's the right thing to do, to, to bring them forward into, into the, into the, into the light, so to speak. And that's a, that's a very powerful movement that uh, I think is just starting to come together. But a lot of work needs to be done there. Mm -hmm. Christian, I, you're going to get the, uh, the go, go ahead, Melody. I'm just going to quickly, just before you get there, I just want to highlight for Christian and for the group that uh, oftentimes when I'm doing these podcasts, I think about 
um, how am I going to change the title of the podcast? And so I did hear the word bigging them up, um, which I love. So I may end up using that. So over to you, Melody. Okay. Yeah. I just want to chime in on the communities of support. Um, I was at the uh, Women uh, in, uh, Impact Summit uh, by AFP, so, so working. And uh, I actually found, uh, like, I love, uh, like, a lot of the keynote speeches and, but what I found most inspiring was actually talking to other people during yeah. the breaks <laughs> and, and, and hearing the stories really like, uh, or sharing your own story and hearing other people's stories. And that was really, really inspiring for me. And I'm, I'm a big fan, fan for like open space technology. So this conference style where you just, come in and talk in, at a deeper level. And I, I feel like, you know, like this could be a better way, you know, like just have everyone share and tell the stories. And that could be the community, right? Like the creating a community of support and, and, and that was most beneficial for me uh, in Phoenix. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Melody. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, we kind of have to blow up how we convene and how we think about conferences mm -hmm. and conventions to modernize ways to have inclusive conversations where there's sometimes more listening than talking. Uh, I just completed a, a set of focus groups around the country uh, with millennials and Gen Z in the workplace and in educational mm -hmm. campuses. And these were men, women, non-binary, gendered people from, uh, you know, all different walks of lives and it was really interesting in kind of talking about how they aggregate news, what issues um, matter to them, mm -hmm. how they think about communities and networks, where they think we are in terms of equity, diversity, inclusion, and intersectionality. And the thing that every one of the focus groups um, taught me and that this is whether I was in a 500,000 person red city or I was in a, you know, 6 million person blue city. Um, is that people are striving to have roundtable conversations where they can have people who don't just look and sound exactly like them, but that they can share experiences with. And we're actually looking at AUW at starting a new equity network in that vein so that we can learn from one another and better advocate, be better, um, you know, upstanders versus bystanders in life um, and lift each other up in ways. And I have to also thank Christian for bringing up sponsorship because it's so different from mentorship and and, you know, talking when people are not in the room about uh, their intelligence, their dynamic thinking, uh, what they can do for uh, the workplace and for their individual industry and sector is so, so critical. And typically it's been white males uh, that have had sponsors in our workforce, whether that's the nonprofit sector, you know, uh, the private sector or the public. And we, we, all of us, you know, all of us, particularly in the nonprofit sector, on, on the phone need to particularly shed some light at educational institutions and nonprofits because I think we get too often a hall pass um, even in thinking about diversity and inclusion and, and Vincent you're right you know AFP and some other groups are stepping up and doing it but we have to make sure it's real and measured and not just lip service um, because our sectors uh, really have been seen as the quote unquote good guys and gals uh, because we're mission based and we haven't had the spotlight on us in terms of inclusion like the for-profits have. And I, I think we have to start building these communities exactly as Melody said 
in a way that we can hear voices and that we're asking open-ended questions to make sure we're not just putting our own ideas out there, uh, that we're listening for new ideas and sharing those. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, you know, one of the challenges in terms of working with um, those in power is, you know, uh, trying to make the case for sharing power. And it's interesting to, <laughs> because at the end of the day, you know, that, you know, we're only going to see real, real change when, you know, we have diversity in, in, um, power, in the, you know, power seats. And so, uh, that's, that's, that's an interesting one because in some ways we're not asking people to just, you know, uh, say, here, give up the seat, but really about opening up the sandbox or making the table bigger. And in, and in some cases, actually saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to take the back seat here, you take the front seat. And sharing that that ownership and leadership is really important. Um, and, and in some ways, it gets to the heart of the matter with regards to, uh, you know, a, a seismic shift in in equality. Um, you know, that what I guess I'm referring to here is, you know, that what what uh, we're what we talk about often when we say access and equity. Uh, you know, diversity and inclusion, uh, you know, um, in some ways, you know, just kind of is the opening up of, of much, a much broader political, critical conversation about the, the changes that need to happen. And I agree, I agree with you, Kim, that nonprofits and educational institutions or sectors, uh, you know, uh, sometimes are uh, seen as uh, um, kind of uh, inspiration or the idyllic place for this kind of conversation or planning to, to occur. But, you know, there's, there are some serious challenges that we face, um, you know, similar to those in the corporate world or even in government. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see that um, over the last few years, particularly as we've seen such a huge shift in and focus in um, in uh, digital technology and conversations around um, uh, kind of uh, very distinct political ideologies, that there's been a kind of a, a further reinforcement or demonstration that these are topics that we can no longer ignore, that in fact they're critical to our future. And uh, particularly in the Canadian context, um, and I would say even within the Global North context, that you know diversity and inclusion isn't going away. It's, uh, there are lots of issues that we need to deal with, and in fact, um, if we don't, it's um, at our collective peril. The... Um I was listening. Thank you, Christian. I was listening to um, things like how, uh, Kim when you said how uh, you had these round these conversations across the country and um, with millennials, and you call them Gen Z, we call them Gen Z. Um, uh, how they aggregate news and things like that. The, um, uh, it, has anybody on, the, on this call ever looked at or, or followed the feed of Black Twitter? Are you familiar with what I'm talking yes. about? There's a whole, yes. A whole subs like and. And honestly, uh, I, I would encourage anyone uh, to to have a look at that because it really shifts your view on um, just how uh, how culturally and off base we are sometimes about um, our assumptions or our, our presuppositions. Um, and it's very interesting to see that that that, that worldview through that. I think a real eye opener and an important one and a positive looking one. 
um, to, to explore. And I'm sure there's lots of other subsets like that. Um, I do think the power conversation is really important. A whole other podcast on that, on, on that. But I do think that the collective action is, is a big deal around that. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm heartened by that. But I'm also disheartened by the fact of how little we've actually done in the nonprofit sector to actually act on diversity and inclusion. Um, and I also heard you talk, um, I heard the words, um, you know, there's four, four letters in IDEA, and we focused a lot on the first two, uh, inclusion and diversity. And we didn't, at least this talk, uh, we didn't spend a lot of time on equity and access. And I think that's a whole other set of podcasts to talk about. Um, getting close to the end here, but before I turn it over the platform over to you, is there's Something you really want to uh, wanted to share in this context that you didn't get a chance to? Um, yeah, Vincent, I'd like to just kind of address or raise the possibilities around truth and reconciliation as well as kind of within the context of uh, idea. And uh, as some of the listeners will, or many of the listeners will know, you know, we've undergone a, a very um, uh, interesting and uh, troubled process around truth and reconciliation within Canada. And it's really allowed for um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples to come together around facing the horrific history in Canada um, to, you know, that has, that has a huge impact on the way we um, are, you know, our condition today, but also the way we see ourselves going forward. Uh, I have to say that there's a lot of lessons to be learned there, and you know the com the, the the issues are still ongoing, um, to say the least. But what it has allowed us to do is really um, focus on this, as well as see it in the new light and context. And you know these conversations need to happen in so many different or we can use this as really a blueprint for other converse, difficult conversations about where we've been with regards to Canada's role in internship of Japanese Canadians or Asians, um, South Asians, um, you know, the black communities on the East, uh, the East Coast and other places. Uh, you know, this, these aren't easy topics, um, but they are something that we have to face head on in order to be able to imagine our future collectively or even within communities. And I take inspiration from the, the, the work that we've done here on in truth and reconciliation as, um, as a, as a, as a way to be able to initiate other conversations, um, that may look and feel different, but are, uh, you know, really useful in understanding where we, you know, what is the current state of the union, so to speak, as it relates to DNI. Thanks for that, Christian. I'm so glad you brought up the, the, the TRC. And I think it is an excellent archetype um, for this type of work. So those of who aren't familiar with it should take a good look at it. I was in Seattle recently at a case conference, and um, that was my first experience in an American city where they did a land acknowledgement. Now, that's probably been going on for a little while, but I didn't I've never experienced it. We see it all the time in Canada. It's a very small sliver of uh, what what has been an outcome of of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but it is one that, that uh, is interesting to watch people embrace. So thank you for that, Christian. Any other uh, uh, sort of big pillars like that before I turn it over for each of you to have your own final say? Yeah, um, uh, yeah this is, oh, go ahead, sorry, go ahead, Melody. Oh, no, no sorry. Uh, I just want to add uh, a note on the uh, capacity building for nonprofit. We kind of touched on, you know, we're not doing it ourselves and, uh, 
I kind of feel like really like working with you, Vincent, with the trio as well. We see organizations that have like diversity doesn't have to be diversified culture or anything. It, like we see departments fighting with each other because they, they have diverse views on different things. Same as, you know, this diversity inclusion idea related issues. My question is like, who's leading this in that process? Is it, is this an HR issue? Is it like, where are we building that capacity to, so that nonprofit and charitable organizations can, um, do these things, um, at that level. Yeah, and where's the accountability for it, right? So it can't just be top-down. And, you know, what I was going to, which actually riffs off of what you're saying, too, pretty well, is there's an accountability for all of us. We don't have to be in the C-suite to affect change. It certainly helps, of course. But just the average individual can do more to ensure equity, access, uh, inclusion, and intersectionality in important ways. You know, simple things like finding out what your hiring and promotion practices are, where you are. They should shouldn't be, you know, opaque. They should be out in the sunshine of being able to understand where the accountability is in hiring and promotion practices, how we understand and appreciate our own implicit or unconscious biases and check them at the door, leaving our assumptions there, how we can, you know, sit down and kind of disrupt the paradigm by talking with people we don't normally talk with in our offices and maybe, I don't know, crazy idea, talk about something other than work so that you can better understand whole selves. Um, You know, you can do simple things like rotating who runs meetings or keeping a tally sheet in front of you if you're doing group meetings to see who gets heard more than others and then calling it out and being a good upstander in that way. Um, You know, bouncing ideas off of each other. I, I think in order to embrace this and really get to that capacity building, there's a lot we as individuals can do. Certainly, we can't do that on our own. It requires our boards, our donors and funders, um, our C-suites to take action. Um, but we need to take a page out of, we don't want to wait for the above the fold uh, headlines in the newspapers of some horrific uh, uh, Me Too experiences or, uh, you know, avo- overt uh, xenophobia and misogyny um, or worse uh, in the workplace. And there, there, are, there are gaps that need to be filled in the nonprofit sector, and we do need to build our capacity here and take some of the, the good practices that are being developed. Um, And last thing I would say, which I think is really, really important, is this is a long game. We continuously learn and develop as we think about authenticity and whole selves, that it's not a toggle switch and then we're done. Uh, And we're going to make mistakes as we move forward. But having more active listening ears to make sure we're hearing people where they are and why that's their life experience will help us to get better every single day. But it's not a a simple do this one thing and you've achieved uh, idea. You know, there's so many layers to this and we're only beginning to peel back on the onions here, but it's going to take efforts by every one of us. Thank you, Kim. Yeah, exactly. That's a great. Uh, thanks, thanks, Melody. That's a great, uh, great uh, uh, summary of, of of where we need and and a bit of, of a call to action. I'm going to come back to you in just a minute. I um a little secret. I um one of the reasons I do these podcasts. A big reason I do these podcasts. We do these podcasts, but me particularly is that I get to listen to um, people like you and the, who are doing amazing things in the sector. And uh, and I'm humbled that you were able to join us today. 
And I want to thank each of you for, for coming. Uh, you've been great guests, Christian, Melody, Kim. I can't wait to have each of you back on our podcast. And we do have people come back, as you know, with Melody. Um, but before we go, you each have a chance to say a little bit more about what you're working on or where people can reach you or another call to action. And we're going to start with you, Melody. What do you want our listening audience to hear and, and take away from today or uh, what you're doing? So, yeah, so obviously I'm moving to Berlin, <laughs> but I'm also on the committee for AFPWE, which is Women Impact Initiative, as well as AFP International Development Committee. And uh, I'm a big believer of uh, design thinking and empathy-based methods uh, in exactly composite building of the charitable sector. So I will, I'm looking to restart my consulting service in Berlin um, and really explore um, empathy-based methods to develop case for support, donor journey mapping, prototyping, fundraising strategies that actually base on real insights instead of assumptions. So um, I'm, I'm currently coaching for IDEO, which is the, an agency that created design thinking um, based out of San Francisco. I'm an alumni coach for their university learners across uh, around the globe. So um, I'm excited to uh, continue the work on the idea with AIP. So, um, and also one thought for AIP uh, Women Impact Initiative. Um, there will be a Women Impact Initiative stream at the AFP ICON this year. And also um, on March 8th, which is a few days from now, um, there will be three micro learnings um, on the International Women's Day, March 8th. Uh, and one of them is by Kim. So uh, I hope that everyone can join in. Well, thanks for that, Melody. And of course, uh, although you're moving far away, it is a global world and we can find you in Berlin. So thanks for that. Kim, mm -hmm. what do you want to uh, leave our listeners with? Yeah, I think um, the biggest thing is 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 really taking um, a question of why, of why we think uh, this is how we should work and why we think um, this is the path forward. And I think making sure that we all have a healthy questioning of of our own biases. You know, we're seeing this play out uh, not just in the U.S. and certainly not just on our continent here, um, but around the globe of the sense of kind of parochial xenophobia again uh, uh, uprising. And I think all, it's on. It really is on all of us to make sure uh, that we're asking why and what for, and checking our biases. There's some easy ways to do that. There's a great test that Harvard developed, um, actually from an AEUW fellowship years ago, uh, called Implicit.Harvard.edu. Um, and I take it two or three times a year because you know I'm a 50 year old uh, woman that identifies as uh, heterosexual and white. Uh, uh, but, you know, I live with a, a brown man and an Asian daughter, and I live in an incredibly multicultural place, and making sure I'm checking my own uh, assumptions daily on uh, every different issue of diversity and inclusion helps me to be a better leader and to be asking more questions rather than giving statements. Um, last, I would say this is, you know, it's 2020. We're in a brand new decade, and just imagine
imagine what we can all accomplish in the next 10 years if we really put together an accountable agenda on what we mean by idea. So what are those small steps and what are those giant audacious steps we can take in policymaking, uh, in better practices in education and in the workplace, um, and what do we expect of our elected and appointed officials and policymakers? So, um, you know, I'm excited about kind of the agenda for idea for the next 10 years, and I want to quantify and qualify big results. So hoping to join with everyone in that effort um, because we're, we're going to be stronger working on all of this together. Thank you, Kim. And uh, I love that you put the, the, the big why out there. And you also did the, uh, I guess we'll have to have this podcast in 10 years and see how we did. So you, you, you put the big call out. Um, I would encourage and, under, and underscore um, uh, taking that implicit bias test. I've done it a couple times, and uh, I'll be honest. Uh, the first time I did it, I wasn't super happy with uh, what my biases were, but they were what they were, and and they they helped uh, helped me understand uh, what I could do about that. Um, that said, Christian, you get the last word. What do you want uh, our audience to do? All right. Um, well, listen, I've worked um, in uh, higher education fundraising for almost 20 years. And, uh, you know, in my experience, both in my professional life, but also in my volunteer life, even in my personal life, I've come across many leaders who, uh, you know, want to see diversity and inclusion. They want it, they need it, they understand from a kind of an academic or intellectual point of view the, the, the case for having diversity and inclusion. I think one of the biggest um, aha moments or where I am right now is that we cannot as leaders or as influencers um, just have our version of diversity and inclusion. Uh, that, in fact, diversity and inclusion is really about kind of letting go of our vision of what it is and allowing those who uh, are in the fold or coming into the fold to shape diversity and inclusion. If I do diversity and inclusion my way, it's going to look a certain way. Um, and, and if I bring people in that will just conform to that, it isn't diversity and inclusion. And, in fact, it's not even access or equity. And so... This is uh this is the big conundrum that I'm you know that I'm kind of grappling with is how do we then encourage leaders to kind of uh shed some of our uh, com uh false commitments to diversity and inclusion because without those challenges within the sandbox or within the community or the organization they're really you know we're still reinforcing a status quo and you know in um you know where the work that I'm doing at Ryerson, particularly um, within the uh, the teaching of the, in the certificate program, we're spending a lot of time actually unpacking um, the quote how we do it fundraising and rethinking, relearning, and bringing in voices from outside of the traditional uh, fundraising community to help influence a new vision for our sector. And I think it's a really good opportunity to be able to listen, but also um, question what we know and why we know it. And so, uh, you know, that's a that's a very exciting part of the program that I'm looking forward to building on. Thank you, Christian. What I heard there, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I heard uh, throughout this podcast, we want to certainly look at how do we get people who are in power to share power, but we also have to think about how we do that ourselves. So thank you all for that. Uh, thank you for an amazing podcast. And with that, our gift of another Brain Trust philanthropy, powered by Vitreo, 
has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you'll join us next month for our fourth episode of 2020, when we will be visiting with Gina Wheatcroft, Trisha King, Joanne Liu, and Brian Bowman. Our topic, Trends in Higher Education Advancement. Until then, take care, and we look forward to talking with you soon. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth. <laughs>